from the Sermon on the Mount. This is out of Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. This is the word of the Lord. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat. So today, after this teaching, um, I, I will go home and I will put on a suit. This is the only suit that I own. I will walk down the street and I will go and officiate a wedding. So what that means is in one day, I'm going to teach on divorce and then I'm going to go in before friends and family and dear ones of the Mejias, uh, I, I'm going to um, like do a, a, a wedding. So that's, that's going to happen. Um, and if you know Helen and Enrique, who have been coming to Gateway, I think, since the beginning, um, well, a long, long time, they're, they're getting married. So, yeah, this is, Helen and Enrique, if you're watching, like, it's happening today. Um, it's, it's very exciting. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's who I'm marrying. And they'll have the same uh, wedding anniversary. By the way, one year of marriage for Josh and Linnea, which is encouraging. Um, wow, so here we go. Uh, so at the core of both of these things, uh, whether it's the dissolution or the union, at the core of both these things, it's not love, it's not commonality, it's this word covenant. And so we're going to lean into that, but I have like some caveats, I guess, because when it comes to a teaching about marriage, I know that uh, many of us are guarded. Like something, something clicks off in our mind, because the fact is, is that some of our marriages are in a tender spot right now. Uh, like just to simply step into this space is an act of faith, because literally you are trying to hold yourself together and wondering how this thing will be held together. And, and if it's not that, then perhaps your story is a bit similar to mine in that you come from a family that has, in your family of origin, is defined by divorce. You have all sorts of love because you have like a thousand grandparents and at the same time you feel a fracturing in your own story. And perhaps it, like you hear this, a teaching on divorce, and you're like, I do not want to hear another teaching about marriage, especially from a Christian white dude. Like, and, oh yeah, by the way, I'm married. So like, p please just, um, I'll be okay. I'll be okay with that one. You see, the, the point is, is that for some of us, we like step into this space and we are scared and scarred by conversations that we've had in spaces like this surrounding this. And so I just, wherever you are in this mix, if you're an apprentice of Jesus, I have an invitation to you. Like if you're trying to follow Jesus, my invitation is to stay, is to stay open to what the Spirit through the Word might have to say to you. And if you're sitting here this morning and you're like, I don't know where I sit with Jesus, I don't know what my apprenticeship to Jesus looks like, um, I have a similar invitation to just consider. Maybe this is like a, a conversation, like you're getting to eavesdrop on a conversation of people who are trying to follow Jesus, and you're just saying, okay, maybe this is a way, a fresh way to think about what Jesus is saying. One last disclaimer, and then I'll, I'll pray. Um, there might be some moments when you feel like I'm like prosecuting a position, or that I'm literally like preaching at you rather than with you or to you. 
Um, I just want to say, I'm not interested in converting any of your positions to the position I hold. I'm going to have a, a, like a more historic or traditional view that some of you would say, that's kind of uptight. And then I'll have a view that's maybe a bit more loose than some would like. I am not trying to convince you to hold the position I hold. And I'm asking you to be open to have this. The one thing I'm, I'm not interested in is closing off a conversation. So what I mean is I would hope that this could be a church where a, like a debate could actually happen. And there's a distinction that I would make between a debate and a disagreement. See, a debate actually says that there's an openness for us to come and like talk about what's, what's going on in front of us. A, a, a disagreement is where generally you show up with your mind already made up and you're trying to prove the other person wrong. So if this could be a church where debates, lively debates even happen, then it seems like maybe this is a place where the Spirit is. And if it's just disagreements, I, I don't know if this is one, a place I want to be, or two, if the Spirit's actually there. Does this make sense? We're alive in here? Is this making sense? Okay. Okay. So if you feel yourself disagreeing with me, that's okay. Take a breath. Notice that thing happening. Jot down a note. And then... Um, Maybe just have a conversation with me, or if it's your thing to send an email, go for it. So now let me pray, and then we'll actually get into this, because that was five minutes long of disclaimer. Apparently I'm nervous or something. Okay, um, Spirit, you know what we need. You know what we need more than what we know that we need, which is a weird thing that you would discern our hearts. And so I just I, I ask that you would help us to welcome all of the things that come. And so we just say we're open. We're open to these um, the feelings of insecurity, of the desires that have come up, of unmet desires, of, of the wounds that we carry. We are open to receive from you. And I would just ask, Jesus, that you would remind us through the power of your spirit that you actually don't carry shame or condemnation, that you carry grace and you carry mercy. And, and your words are, are hard, and yet they hold us. They hold us as ones who are dearly loved. And so would you speak your words of belovedness over us this day? Um, and so I just relinquish, like relinquish any control in, um, to you, Jesus. And I just pray for accountability in this community. That the, If there are things that are harsh, that you would help them to, to give feedback that leads us closer to you. And so, Jesus, we just say you are welcome here. Come, Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Amen. And so th there is a, um, a flow to the Sermon on the Mount. If you haven't got this yet, we have been in the Sermon on the Mount, and we will be in the Sermon on the Mount until the fall, maybe even sneaking into the fall a little ways. Uh, but last week, Jesus focused on the combustive force of disordered desires. Uh, essentially, Jesus looks at this issue of adultery, and then he goes further to the heart of the matter, which he calls the lust of the heart. And he looks at how disordered desires actually give way to something that will not lead to life, but will make its way toward death. This is Jesus' conversation about cutting stuff off because it's better to enter eternal life with, you know, one less member than be thrown into the pits of hell. Just those nice teachings of Jesus that you, like, warm up to at night, you know? Uh, so Jesus here is going to uh, continue. So with literally, like, death lingering in the air in verse 30, we turn to verse 31, and we see Jesus explore the wider ecology of adultery, namely divorce, and marriage. And so when we come to verse 31, what we actually encounter is this summary statement um, 
from Jesus, which is a summary of case law from the Hebrew Bible. And maybe you've come from a tradition that you maybe remember like three teachings from the Hebrew Bible. And what they were were prophecies about how Jesus perfectly fulfilled every prophecy. It was like a teaching on every promise finds its yes and amen in Jesus. And it like proof texted a bunch of prophecies that pointed to Jesus. Or perhaps you have a view, a view where you like, you came from a tradition that had, I don't know, you went through the lectionary. So you regularly heard from the Psalms and the prophets, wherever you're coming from, Jesus is in a moment where he's talking to people who know the Hebrew Bible. They know their Old Testament. In other words, Jesus can say a line or a summary statement from a whole book, and it populates the whole thing in their mind. Jesus likely has the whole of the Torah memorized, the first five books of our Old Testament. The people he's speaking with likely have these same stories kind of written on their hearts. Like their grandparents would be telling these stories. This is the story people know. So Jesus comes to verse 31, and he summarizes this case law from Deuteronomy 24. And it would be helpful for us to hear this. So this is Deuteronomy 24, 1 to 4. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent, and that little turn of phrase, something indecent, can also be translated something shameful. So if if someone's married and the husband finds something displeasing, something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, and if she leaves his house and she becomes the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, or if he dies, uh, for whatever reason that makes me laugh, it's not funny, but uh, verse 4, then her first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her because she's been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land that your Lord, your God, is giving you as an inheritance. So that's in the Bible. And um, maybe this is why you don't read the Old Testament. (laughs) Or you get there and you're like, "Why, why am I here? So what is this? Like, what is going on when you are encountering Deuteronomy 24? Or Jesus' summary statement of Deuteronomy 24 and Matthew 5, 31. Well, again, this is case law. This is about how to mitigate the aftermath of divorce in an ancient agrarian society. Do we live in an ancient agrarian society? No. It's going to be a little bit different. So we have to do some work of like making sense of what's going on here. But Deuteronomy 24, and let this sink in. Deuteronomy 24 is not God's ideal. Stay with me because you're like, oh, that's heretical. Uh, Deuteronomy 24 is not God's ideal for marriage. Deuteronomy 24 is not God's ideal for marriage in hardship. Deuteronomy 24 is what scholars call a divine accommodation. This is what we would call a concession. The, The God of Israel, Yahweh, has stepped into the relational mess of a people in a particular time, in a particular place. And in that particular time, in particular place, the thing that defined most marriages was this practice called polygamy. Anybody remember polygamy? You know, one dude who owned the land, multiple wives. Okay, no? Um, no, no, we have no context for at least the practice of polygamy. And if you do, it's because you have a, like a totally different family of origin and a different story. 
you're out. And then he turns back to the same text in Deuteronomy 24. So all of these, Shammai and Hillel, they go back to the same place, and yet they come to different conclusions. Nothing but adultery and literally anything that the husband found as grounds for divorce. How are we doing here with, uh, like, case law and divorce in the ancient Near East? Yeah? Do you remember how we would say things like, oh, if we could just get back to the original church, just the Acts 2 spirit over the... By the way, Pentecost is coming, and we're praying to that end at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings if you want to get hyped on that. But you know how we say that? I don't know if we actually want to go back to that moment. The women want it? Yeah. Oh, that they don't. (laughs) I'm just like, that was either sarcasm or sadness. Oh, dear Lord, have mercy. Okay. This is what everyone has heard. Everyone knew this. They've heard this statement. If we were going to take Jesus' statement, you have heard that it was said, simply give them a certificate of divorce. They knew that statement. But what they don't know is necessarily what Jesus is going to say in verse 32. And this is what Jesus then, in that contested space, he brings these words to bear. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So at this point in the Sermon on the Mount, you may be like, okay, Jesus, um, please say more. What do you mean? Makes her commit adultery? She's the victim of it? If you go to other translations, um, the, the, the NIV that we just read right here inserts the language of victim, which I think is actually super helpful. But in others, it's, it's not going to use that language. It'll just mean, it'll say commit adultery. So the NIV is interpreting what's going on. Jesus doesn't say anything else. He's going to start, next week we're going to talk about oaths. <laughs> so he just says a thing. Yeah, oaths, oath keeping. Um, what in the world? Just, Jesus just leaves us hanging right there. And so what will happen is not a nuanced argument about divorce concessions and permissions. Instead, what's going to happen is, is we pick up this conversation, and you'll get these moments where you'll say, someone says, okay, there it is. Jesus' definitive teaching, the Sermon on the Mount. This is the ethical vision for life in the kingdom of God. It's on Jesus' lips. Nothing but adultery. Anything outside of that means you stay in that marriage. Maybe separate, you know, because then there's like, if there, there's always the statement, if there's violence, get out. And yes, of course. And somehow that statement just hangs in the air. It's nothing but adultery. The challenge, I think, and we'll get into some of the um, nitty gritty of this in a moment, but to leave the conversation there or to stop the conversation there neglects what Jesus does in the remainder of the same freaking gospel. In Matthew 19, Jesus, when pressed on divorce, goes on to say this. This is Matthew 19, picking up in verse 3. Some Pharisees came to test him. And that little statement might sound like, okay, math quiz? No. Literally, a test is to put Jesus into a place of like vulnerability where he can then be arrested. At this point, they're trying to kill him. So some Pharisees, they come to test Jesus, and they asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Does that sound familiar? That's that progressive Hillelite view. For any any cause, Jesus doesn't take the bait. Verse 4, we read, haven't you read 
that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female, and he said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So Jesus, instead of taking the bait, he turns back to pages one and two and cites from a poem to make sense of what's going on. Verse six, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And just Take notice that when Jesus is pressed on divorce, before he gives a response, or actually the response he gives is, is, a, is about what it means to be human. He goes back to pages one and two to, to remind the Pharisees of where this whole conversation, like, no, this is not the matter at hand. The, the thing that we need to consider is what does it mean to be human? Because when we have in mind what it means to be human, perhaps we can have a conversation worth having. See, Jesus, before I, th and this is just my opinion, and we can, this is where we can have a debate. Um, before we can know what Jesus thinks about marriage, we need to know what Jesus thinks about what it means to be human. And not just what it means to be human, but what it means to flourish as a human. And Jesus actually has something to say about this. And he looks at this poem. He says, male and female, he created them. This comes from Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Like, Jesus is quoting from this moment where we see humanity. God made humanity, Adam. And then Adam, who is one, is actually two, male and female. And they co-equal with mutual honor and dignity, bear God's image to push flourishing out into all creation. So there's one that's actually two. And then Jesus is going to pick up from later on in this poem in chapter 2. And he says, okay, um, and the two will become one. And what God has joined together, let no one separate. So you have one that becomes two that becomes one. In other words, if you try and do divine math, it means one plus one equals one. So before we can ask questions about marital relationships and divorce or the rightness or the wrongness of what a thing is or isn't, I think that we would do well with Jesus to say, what is a human? And then what does it actually mean for a human to flourish? And I don't pretend that these are easy questions to respond to. And, and I think, like, in the shouting match that is our culture, like, this could easily be shifted into, okay, well, now we're going to have a culture war conversation. And I, like... I think that's what makes me nervous about this is because I'm like, I desperately don't want that to be the case. And yet I know that this language is dripping with that stuff. So we just can't avoid it, but we can have a different posture in it. Amen? Amen. We go on. So we may choose to participate in the shouting match over sexuality and gender and divorce and whatever is happening there. But let me just add some commentary on this that I've found helpful um, this is not like fully from my brain, but this is just reading and listening. Um, if you fully embrace the secular vision of the world, that we are all like a happy accident and therefore our life is to be given, like we were just here and survival and pleasure are our pursuit. If that's the story, then of course marriage makes no sense. Like there's, there's, like, then marriage is just a societal construction that was put in place to keep people who are in power in power and to pe keep people who are on the margins on the margins. If that's the story, then perhaps we should just let pleasure have its way and stop dealing with all of this stuff. If that's the story. 
And maybe, and there's more nuance to be had here and more complexity. This is where a debate is actually helpful. But just at, I know this is overgeneralized and reduced, but if that's the story that we believe, then those are those are part of the ends. But if there is a different story, if there is another way, if there's actually this thing where we were not created, excuse me, where we were created to bear God's image with will and intention and, and like beauty, and we're not just animals with time and chance on our side, but we are image bearers, and, and we were given this gift as one way to display the covenant love of God, namely marriage, um, then perhaps Jesus' words actually have something that are significant and life-meaning and, and actually can bear like fruit that is beautiful and actually desirable in the world. But I just want to um, pause right here because um, I want to ask this question. Do you need marriage in the kingdom of God to display covenant faithfulness? I don't think so, but maybe you're on the fence. Just listen with me a little bit further to Jesus in Matthew 19. So Jesus now has like made this statement. He doesn't involve himself in the question, but makes a declaration about male and female God joining that together. And then the Pharisees come back and they say, why then did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? This is Deuteronomy 24. Notice that Deuteronomy 24 is the focus of conversation. Verse 8, Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce. Jesus calls attention to the fact that there's a permission, not a command. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, and why? Because your hearts were hard. But it was not that way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife accepts sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Jesus brings this back to the same point that we hear in the Sermon on the Mount. And then, and then what we see in verse 10 is like the disciples are now hearing Jesus do this for the first time. And they're like, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, uh, it's probably better, better not to marry. And think about the culture they're growing up in. This is a permissive divorce culture. Any reason. And this, is, this goes, there's actually marriage um, or divorce certificates from women as well. And where, so it's like, let's say, um, I don't know, the intimacy is not all that you thought it would be, or the relationship is odd, or your father-in-law is a jerk, and you just need to, like, bail on that, then there's an appeal that can be made. If you want to, like, nerd out on this, you can go read in Exodus 21. In Exodus 21, you will find three provisions that are given to people, and this is actually, like, written out on uh, wedding certificates. It's food, clothing, and, uh, like, um, what? conjugal rights, sex. So this is the stuff. And then within that is adultery. There's four reasons that are held up. These are the things. If any of these three, food, clothing, and conjugal rights, are not provided in the context of a marriage, that's grounds for divorce. So there's actual, there's, there's stuff. The disciples have grown up in a space where it's not just those four things. It's anything you want. Literally anything. And Jesus now has this to say, and they're like, uh-oh, like you probably shouldn't get married. And Jesus, I'm imagining, is going, well, we don't have to imagine. He tells us, verse 11, not everyone can accept this word. You think, Jesus, um, isn't that true today? Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. And then check this out in verse 12. 
for there are eunuchs who were born that way. It's like, hold on a second, Jesus. You just told, you just said that in the beginning God created them male and female, but now you're saying that there's eunuchs? Um, eunuchs is an odd thing to talk about at church. Eunuchs were often male servants who were in the court of a king. And in order to serve in that place and the king's progeny be restored, his heirs, essentially, these would be people who were castrated. And they would serve in that capacity, but they would have basically their instruments to um, violate the bounds of a covenant were removed. And Jesus says here that there are eunuchs who are born that way, not made that way. But then he'll go on to say that. And there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. And then there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who could accept this, who can't accept this, should accept it. So, so let me just ask again, do you need marriage in the kingdom of God to display or receive covenant faithfulness? No. No, like Jesus actually has a framework for life to be, f- like, did Jesus have a satisfying life? Was Jesus married? I don't think that the arguments that he was married to Mary Magdalene are convincing. I, I just don't. But I'm not a scholar, so go and read some people who are way smarter than me who also make that case. Did Jesus have a fulfilling life? Maybe we could argue the most fulfilling life. He's called the truly human one. I think Jesus sees himself in that latter category. Those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Do you need marriage in the kingdom of God to receive and give covenant love? No, you do not. But you know what we've done in the church is we've actually made that the marker of success. We've made that the marker of maturity. We've made that the marker of flourishing in a community. And for that, for the ways that I've explicitly done it and for the ways that has been implicitly like signaled I don't know, it seems like an empty apology, but like we want to be a, a, a different type of community. That means we actually want to be a space where we can not just talk about this, but embody this, because somehow Jesus has space for to say two things, that a, a marriage can display covenant faithfulness, and a eunuch can display covenant faithfulness. Are, are we on the same page? Do, do you know that this is Jesus of Nazareth talking about this? This is not the most compelling stuff in the... Okay, we'll keep going because to a permissive divorce culture, either the one of Jesus' day or our own, Jesus' words, they cut against the grain because they call us to embody something more than self-interested concern. They call us to extend ourselves for the good of others. By the way, our discipleship to Jesus is always meant for the good of others. And the moment that we feel like it's just spiraling inward, and I'm not saying that the inward journey is bad. I actually think unless we go inward, we can never truly move out toward others with empathy and compassion. But if we stay inward, it's like a downward spiral that will kill community, not make it flourish. And Jesus is saying there's actually a way for us to get outside of ourselves But we get caught in this trap of self-interest. And I think one of the areas that, especially in churchianity, we get caught in is like this allure that, okay, marriage will fulfill my utmost desires. And I thought, I tried to get this quote in everywhere. So this one may have, like, this is um, not a good transition, but this quote is good. So just Philip Yancey. um, I think he just says it better in terms of, like, fulfilling our self-interest. Are you ready for this? 
We're not going to read it all together, but I want you to hear this because this is a Philip for the win. Uh, Marriage strips away the illusion about sex pounded into us daily by the entertainment media. Few of us live with oversexed supermodels. We live instead, and this is my favorite part, with ordinary people, men and women who get bad breath, body odors, and unruly hair, who menstruate and experience occasional impotence. Um, You can Google that later. Who have bad moods and embarrass us in public, which I am doing right now on the internet. Who pay more attention to our children's needs than our own. We live with people who require compassion, tolerance, understanding, and an endless supply of forgiveness, such as the ironical power of sex. It lures us into a relationship that offers to teach us what we need far more, sacrificial love. If this sounds bizarre, I understand. And, and this is, just hear me clearly, this is not about this church or the church in general trying to um, enforce our ethical vision of gender and sexuality and marriage onto the culture. This is instead about us trying to live as, um, like, in the counterformation of Jesus, as like a creative minority of disciples to Jesus who are trying to actually embody the way of Jesus the moment that it becomes about us enforcing an ethical vision of Christianity in the world, that is not the vision of Jesus. Because we actually have the capacity to love people and disagree. We have the capacity to love people and debate. We have the capacity, because of the spirit of the living God, to live in a different way, and that be, that'd actually be okay. And in a a pluralistic world, that actually might be a gift for us to hold on to the integrity of the way of Jesus. But we we probably want to, like, have some good debates on what that way actually is. But I think, sadly, I get this twisted and we get this twisted because it's so easy to turn inward. So I just want to remind us what a covenant is. Um, Helen and Enrique will hear this later today. Josh and Linnea, a year ago, to this day, heard this thing. So this is, lest we forget, God desires us to bind ourselves to him as he has done to the church and Jesus. And so God doesn't want a contract. He wants a covenant. He doesn't want a place of self-interest. He wants a place of self-sacrifice. And so, lest we forget this, let's just hear what a contract versus a covenant is. See, a contract says, I take you on my terms, but a covenant says, I give myself to you. A contract says, you better do it. And a covenant says, how may I serve you? A contract says, what do I get? And a covenant says, what can I give? A contract says, I'll meet you halfway. And a covenant says, I will give all of myself to you. A contract says, I have to. And a covenant says, I get to. There's a different motivating spirit of a covenant. And I think that we can actually be sure that God desires a covenant, not a contract. But sometimes I don't think that we desire what God desires. In fact, I think often in my, there's like one moment where I do want what God wants and the very next moment I don't want what God wants. And so in the midst of that, I think we just need to be reminded that when, like when the dust of passion settles and we're sitting perhaps in a marriage or with a friend who is married, like when the dust of passion settles and that person, our friend, or we ourselves are wondering, how will this thing hold? A covenant actually is strong enough to hold it. 
Like when the love that you felt that was raw at the beginning of something is not there. When the love gives way, a covenant can hold. Like when the high of another adventure wears off, a covenant can actually hold. See, the message that we see time and time again in the life of Jesus is that a covenant can hold. and doesn't happen magically or accidentally, but it happens intentionally. You see, I've, I've known marriages to endure hardship, to survive sickness, and, and where repentance and lives in keeping with repentance, I've actually known marriages to survive the tragedy of adultery. But what I do not think a marriage can survive is what Jesus addresses in Matthew 19, and that is a hard heart. It is a heart that is turned away, a heart that is entirely self-interested, and it is essentially a heart that is living like a contract, and it says, if you don't meet me here, I am gone. There is a different heart posture that Jesus wants to yield. But this is what's so beautiful about Jesus is he's actually interested in transforming our hearts. Like if, if you want to hear the gospel again, it's this. Jesus actually wants to transform you. That the inner, your inner woman or your inner man, to meet you where you are and see you flourish. Not to make you less of who you are, but more of who you are. And that can happen in whatever stage of life, gender you are. Jesus wants to meet you. And whatever your sexual orientation is, Jesus wants to meet you and see you flourish in the way of Jesus. And I get that his words can sound harsh. And perhaps I don't understand how harsh they can sound because I actually express, um, like try to express covenant faithfulness through a marriage. But that is not the complete picture of the body of Christ. There's a place for eunuchs in this space. And maybe this whole time you're thinking, okay, um, Kyle, this sounds like there's only one way out of marriage. And it's literally adultery. But what about abuse? And what about verbal abuse? And what about abandonment? What about neglect? And we have all of like, and I'm sure a thousand other whatabouts rise up. Is, is Jesus saying there's only one way out of this thing? Um, right here, yes and no. Here's what I mean. Jesus is talking about Deuteronomy 24. And when we try to make Jesus talk generally to give an all-inclusive teaching out of this text, we're asking him to do something he's actually not doing. He's talking about nothing but adultery to these people who are saying, is there any reason? And he says, no, it's nothing but adultery. By the way, what it means to be human is this. And because Jesus is not giving an all-inclusive teaching, it actually means that we can receive the wisdom of the scriptures and essentially say that if there is a justifiable reason for a divorce to occur, that it can happen and that you can actually remarry. And there's differences of this. And I was like, do I put the four reasons within evangelicalism that people talk about this? And I don't know. They seem ridiculous each time I read them. Are there justifiable reasons? They're probably subjective. And are they valid? Maybe for one case and not for another. I don't know. I'm not a counselor. It's probably best to do that in community with a person who does know these things. But as someone who's trying to pastor us in the way of Jesus, I just want to say that I don't think Jesus would agree with our permissive divorce culture. I think he would stand in the same way he stood against the permissive divorce culture of the day, of his day. Because Jesus has a fundamentally different worldview. He says it's not that way from the beginning. And why? Because the beauty of covenantal love that is on offer in Jesus 
It's actually saying, saying something different, that there's a way to give yourself for the good of another. And I'll just close with this. Um, I thought a lot about nuns this week. And I used to think nuns were really weird because uh, nuns will not just take vows of, of chastity or depending on their, their order or poverty, but oftentimes they will then call Jesus their husband. And at first I was like, that's super weird. Like Jesus is the reigning king, probably not your husband. And then I was like, oh, maybe nuns know their identity more than I know my identity in Christ. They actually know that they're like bound to Jesus. They've given themselves over fully to Jesus. They're receiving his love and his faithfulness in ways that I have no idea. And then Jesus calls all of us his bride. See, wherever you are in the matrix of this conversation, maybe we can have a picture of the church that there is a way, like Jesus's love is sufficient to meet us in whatever station of life we're in. And he actually is inviting us to see that his covenant faithfulness is sufficient to help us in this very day. And when brokenness yields the mess that it always will, like the church of Jesus, who is Jesus' brides, will be attended by Jesus. And so this is the hope that I hope that we can attend to this morning. And so I just want to invite you to stand, to remember that Jesus is actually willing to have his body broken for the good of his bride. Mm -hmm.